Hello from London. This is Tax Notes Talk. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, Brexit Update. I'm in London this week for the International Fiscal Association Congress, and I figured it would be a great opportunity to check in with Jeremy Cape to talk about the latest developments in the ongoing Brexit saga, and on his recent column, Lamenting the State of Conservative Party Tax Policy. Now, we recorded this episode on September 9th, so additional developments may have happened by the time you hear it. Joining me now is Jeremy Cape, a tax and public policy partner with Squire Patton Boggs here in London, and a Tax Notes International columnist. Jeremy, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, and uh, welcome to cloudy, chilly London. Thank you. So last time we talked, it was about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And can you just bring the listeners up to date on what has been happening with Brexit since then? What has been happening with Brexit? Well, rather a lot, but I don't think we want to go for a Dan Carlin-style length uh, podcast. So in summary, we thought the UK would be likely to leave the EU at the end of March of this year in accordance with the Article 50 process, which meant that there was two years between serving notice and then leaving. However, the deal that Theresa May had agreed at a principles level with the EU She was unable to bring through Parliament, particularly through the House of Commons, which rejected it on three occasions. Therefore, the UK asked for two extensions, one in in March and then a subsequent one in April to try and get its act together. And uh, Donald Tusk, the president of the council, said to the UK, do not waste this time that we have given you. Uh, So since April, we've had uh, a leadership contest which was won by uh, Boris Johnson quite uh, resoundingly. The MPs then went on holiday for the summer. And uh, since the return to Parliament in September, quite a lot has occurred. I think that's an understatement. Yeah, yeah. What has happened, Boris Johnson stated during the leadership contest that he was very keen that the UK should leave the EU at the end of this extension, 31st October 2019, deal or no deal. He has continued to stick to this pledge, but in trying to get there, he's managed to lose his majority. He's managed to lose two ministers, one of whom was his brother, Joe Johnson, and uh, then at the weekend, Amber Rudd, a Remainer, but one who was brought into the cabinet to provide at least some breadth. But uh, she resigned on the basis that uh, she thought that Boris Johnson was now no longer interested in negotiating a new deal with the EU that would enable the UK to leave on 31st of October in an orderly fashion. Now, I'm anticipating the answer to this, but is it any clearer today what Brexit's going to look like than it was a year ago? No, I would say that it it probably isn't. I'd say at the moment, it looks highly unlikely that the UK will leave on the 31st of October because Parliament has passed a a bill, which um, at the time of recording, I think it, it received its Royal Assent a couple of hours ago, that requires Boris Johnson to ask for an extension to the Article 50 process. So we don't leave 31st October unless he's able to agree a deal or or otherwise leave with the old Theresa May deal by, by that date. It doesn't look like he's going to be able to do that. Now, there is some talk that he may not 
asked for that extension. I suspect it's unlikely ultimately that a prime minister would break the law in that way. They may be trying to find some loopholes around it, but I suspect that's unlikely. It's slightly more possible that the UK could ask the EU, needs to be all the member states, to agree for an extension, and they say no. Just one of them could say no. Or we may ask, as is required by the the legislation, Boris Johnson may ask for an extension to 31st of January and the EU comes back and says, well, no, the extension has to be two years and that goes back to Parliament and Parliament says, no, that, that's too long. So it's possible that, that the UK could leave with a deal, the old deal, a new deal or no deal at the end of October, but I think it's unlikely. So we're probably looking into 2020. Ultimately, there remain three options. One is to leave without a deal. One is to leave with a deal of some sort, which will probably be like the Theresa May deal or a variation thereon, or to revoke Article 50 and remain a member of the EU like it was all a bad dream. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. Here at Tax Notes Talk, we love to discuss the major issues in taxation, but we can only do so much. If you want to learn more than we can teach you here, our sponsors may have the right program for you. The Graduate Tax Program is a one-year, full-time program offered at the UC Irvine campus. It's ranked as the number one graduate tax program on the West Coast. All members of the founding faculty have practical experience and have significant experience teaching in other graduate programs. The program boasts a small student-to-faculty ratio to ensure that students get the attention they need to succeed in their studies and in their careers. For domestic students and U.S. permanent residents, the deadline to apply is April 1st, 2020. Non-U.S. students must apply by February 1st. Apply today. Visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. Now, you mentioned that there were several defections from the government. What is the state of the government at the moment? Well, it, I think, has a a majority of minus 43. Um, This is because following the bill that was introduced by rebel MPs, Labour, Conservative MPs, to require Boris Johnson to ask for the extension. 21 largely very distinguished, very reasonable, experienced MPs who supported that bill were expelled from the Conservative whip. Now, for many purposes, they will still support the government. Most of them still regard themselves as Conservatives, still members of the Conservative Party, but they are now no longer technically part of the part of the government. So Boris Johnson doesn't command a majority of the House, and that's one reason that as of this evening, Monday evening, unless something strange happens, totally unexpected, that Parliament will be prorogued, which will mean that in effect it will go into suspension for five weeks. That means that nothing really is going to happen, nothing can happen in in Parliament, and there's a question what the government does with that time, whether Johnson tries to negotiate a new deal with the, the EU, or we just do nothing and wait till Parliament comes back. Would holding a new election fix any of this? Well, it depends what the result of the election is. If there's an election and Boris Johnson, assuming he's still leader of the Conservative Party, if he can win a majority of 50, maybe 40 MPs, then you can come back and then it should be possible, at least in theory, it should be more possible for him to deliver on what he wants. And that may not be a no-deal Brexit. That may be something else. There is speculation 
that, in fact, he might be prepared to go back to a previous iteration of the withdrawal agreement, which would involve a Northern Ireland-only backstop, which for many purposes treats Northern Ireland as a, a special territory, part of the UK and yet different from the GB rump. If he does that, then it's possible, although it will annoy the DUP, but he won't be relying on them, that you could see some resolution. If, on the other hand, you come back after a general election with a Jeremy Corbyn, majority of 40 or 50, then Corbyn could well be in a position to deliver his vision of Brexit and also his vision of what a a modern 21st century state should look like. And as this is Tax Notes International, that could be rather different in terms of how the UK is taxed compared to how it is now and how it may change if Boris Johnson remains Prime Minister. So a lot of that does depend on what happens in the election. My guess, and I'll make a prediction because I suspect none of the listeners today remember what I got right and probably more likely wrong during our chat last October, my prediction is it's more likely that no party ends up with a majority and affect the general election doesn't solve anything. So we're back to square one. We're at a stage where we don't know. There may be another extension. We may be waiting till 2020 for some resolution, or we may just get extension after extension. Yeah, I think there is likely to be an extension beyond 31st of October. It's not absolutely certain, but I think it's around 90% certain that it goes there. The problem seems to me that it seems likely that after that extension request is made, which will be a few days before 31st of October, we will then get a general election. There needs to be five weeks between the calling of the general election and the general election taking place. That takes us into the end of November. We then have three weeks before Christmas. We then have three weeks or so in January, and then unless things have got resolved in that time, which even with the majority, let's say 60, 70, it's going to be quite hard to get all that legislation through. Theory, if you have a large majority for Johnson, you could see things being resolved by 31st of January. But I think it's quite possible that we'd be looking for another extension. But at some stage, the EU is going to get fed up with extension after extension. And whilst I think the EU is concerned about a no deal, in the sense that they would much prefer for the UK to leave in an orderly manner, that's partly because the Irish border issue is a problem for a member state, Ireland, a wider problem for the EU, but there are also the disruptive effects of, or in the short term, but possibly to have the UK outside as a tax haven, as a low reg state. There'll be a lack of keenness, I suspect, on the EU to see that occur. So there is a preference, but ultimately, extension after extension after extension does put pressure on the EU, which would rather be worrying about other things. All right. Why don't we turn now to your column? It ran September 9th. You wrote a column about the Conservative Party's tax plans. Can you tell me about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I, I love writing my columns for Tax Notes International. This was the most painful one. It took me all summer to put it together in excess of 40 hours. So I was very pleased to see it published. Usually my columns just come out of something I read on Twitter or a fever dream that I have at night. This one came out of watching the Conservative candidates debate tax policy. Now, most of the debate during the election was about Brexit, but there was discussion of of other issues and and tax came to the the fore. And I was watching one of the leadership debates and I was reading around what their candidates were saying. Of the final six candidates, they were all coming out with different headline policy proposals on tax and they were quite different. And yes, that's 
not unusual in elections within a party. See that within the Republicans, within the Democrats, each will have different emphasis, whether that will be someone who wants to see a wealth tax, someone who wants to increase the rate of income tax. I have someone, I think Ted Cruz was sort of in favour of VAT. So you do see these differences, but between these six candidates, there were such marked differences. I thought that was worthy of comment. And the other point was just the intellectualization. That's a word. I'll accept. That's a great Scrabble score. But the intellectualization of tax policy. And it was the fact, and I think Michael Gove was the worst offender in terms of coming up with a tax proposal. So he was the candidate who said, not going to talk about income tax, not going to talk about corporation tax. I want to replace VAT with a sales tax. That's an interesting direction to go in. It is. Now, he's not the only potential leader who's wanted to go in that direction. Malaysia has seen move from VAT to sales tax. Zambia, not sure if they've quite got it there. They keep saying they're about to and they don't. So you see a few countries who are rejecting VAT in favour of a sales tax. Now, what is the argument in favour of a sales tax over VAT? They seem to have a problem in Zambia with, with the idea that if you are a mining company and you import machinery, you pay import VAT, but then you get it back. If you're a mining company in Zambia and you export what you get out of the ground, you get the the VAT back. So you're not getting any VAT from the mining companies, but you are getting VAT from the consumers, right? It's a design feature. It's a consumer-based tax. That's why they don't like it in Zambia. In Malaysia, my understanding is that it was just difficult to comply with because it VAT cascades through the supply chain. And there was a sense that this is just a bit too tricky. Let's just apply it at, at the end. But Gove didn't really make the principled case. I'm a smart guy. I'm sure he knew what that was. I think the argument there, which is the reverse, the argument why the US hasn't seen a move to VAT, the Republicans think it makes it too easy to raise tax revenues because if I go to Macy's and I buy a jacket for $100 and then I go and pay for it. It always shocks me that I have to pay $108, whatever it is. If you go to Selfridges and you buy a jacket, and David, I know you're a man of extreme style, so I suspect you'll be going to Selfridges and buying yourself a £1,000 Gucci coat. And uh, But that £1,000 is that £1,000, and that within that is the VAT element. And of course, you're not paying 7 8% sales tax, you're paying 20% VAT within that price. So I think the argument is that sales tax is necessarily lower, and low taxes have got to be good, right? Some people make that argument. That would be the argument that Gove would make if he was asked to make that argument or if he had thought it was a good idea to make that argument in the first place. So sales tax is going to be lower. He would make the argument it's fairer, but again, I struggle to see that. You can say that the base can be narrowed with a sales tax. Typically, it doesn't apply to services as much as it does to goods. You could say within the goods that you can grade the rates in such a way that basics are subject to a lower percentage than luxury goods. But as research has shown, I, I was at a conference last week in Leeds University and Rita de la Feria, who's written a lot on this stuff and who I quoted in an earlier column about the dangers of knowing the VAT base, has shown from her original research that reducing the base where on VAT or sales tax is regressive, that it's not progressive. But you can see how that might fly. You might argue that it's more progressive to have a sales tax with some lower 
rates, maybe that's an argument. There's also an argument for localism. I've seen that made. Douglas Carswell, who was a Conservative MP who then resigned and joined UKIP, lost his seat then in the, I think it was the 2017 election, it may have been the 2015, but anyway, he lost his seat. But he has written on tax policy and he made a case for the sales tax to say, you then don't have a tax that operates on a national basis, but you have it on a local basis and we need more localism in the UK. But he then takes that argument to another level to say that it would be a good thing if, let's say, rather than pay the 9% sales tax in my original home, hometown of Dorchester in in beautiful Dorset, I might decide rather than getting my Gucci jacket, although I'm not a man of such style as you, so it probably wouldn't be a Gucci jacket, um, but I don't get that in in Dorchester where there's a 9% sales tax. I'm going to travel across to Poole, 20 miles down the the road, to pay a 7% tax. So it's trying to encourage that race to the bottom. But none of this was articulated and none of it was really pressed either by the media or by the other candidates. And that disappointed me as someone who can be sympathetic to at least the making of an argument that some taxes could be lower and that the sole criteria should not be whether a tax cut can be made because it is progressive. The idea that you can only ever cut taxes for people at the poorer end of the spectrum before you can look somewhere else in that seems to have permeated the debate even within the Conservative Party. And that struck me as a strange position for the UK Conservative Party to be where it clearly hasn't concerned Trump. And I'm not coming out of this by saying that we should see Trump as a role model on tax reform, but I think the difference that we've seen in the approach to tax reform and the very narrow scope that the Conservative Party has given itself to try and find some space for tax reform was worthy of a 3,300-word column. All right. Well, Jeremy, I thank you very much for uh, well hosting me. I'm here in your offices, and hopefully we can have you back when we know a little bit more about what Brexit is going to be. Yes. Well, I look forward to seeing you in 2032. <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, David. I'll leave you with some of the sounds of the protests that took place in Parliament Square on September 7th. And now, coming attractions. Each week we preview commentary that will be appearing in the Tax Notes magazines. Back in the studio is Content and Acquisitions Manager Faye McRae. Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Roger Collinvo and Ray Madoff examine the policy goals informing charitable tax incentives and discuss what would undermine those goals. George Garakis, David Cole, and Juliana Hunter consider how much weight courts should give to a government agency's position first raised in litigation in light of two recent Ninth Circuit decisions. In Tax Notes State, Carly Roberts, Robert Merton, and Mike Lee evaluate Arizona's judicial objection to the reach of California's tax imposition on out-of-state companies. Maria Todorova, Chris Lee, and Justin Brown discuss the different requirements by states for reporting federal adjustments and outline strategies for limiting multi-state taxpayers' compliance burdens. In Tax Notes International, Thomas Horst estimates the actual revenue effects of four international provisions of the TCJA and compares his estimates to projections made by the JCT in late 2017. Louis J. Greenwald and Joseph Miska review the proposed guilty regulations and suggest how flaws in the guilty high-tax exclusion might be addressed. 
On the opinions page, Carrie Elliott looks at what game theory can tell us about the dynamics among players and tax systems. And Ben Willis writes about the two questions U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar posed to Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin about Guilty's incentive to offshore assets. You can read all that and a lot more in the September 16th editions of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.